Happy Saturday. It's August 5th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And I think everyone is on vacation this month, Michael. Well, it's August. It's Federal Augusto or whatever it is you want to call. People have slipped away and they're all quietly out of office, right? I have to say, email correspondence way down this week, and I'm not angry about that. (laughs) Well, that's good. It's good that everyone's helping everyone else's mentee be or mental health, as they say. And we also have a terrific show this week filled with great guests and stories. We've got Joanna Berkman, who is going to join us to share the details of her shocking reporting on Leon Black. Black, the billionaire titan of Wall Street, now stands accused of raping a teenager at sex offender Jeffrey Epstein's Upper East Side townhouse. Then, Ash Carter is going to swing by to discuss an unflinchingly honest new memoir by one of the most influential media figures of the last few decades, a man whose magazine was read by presidents and shaped policy, but later came on difficult times. And then finally, speaking of summer, Ashley, in August, Elena Claverino is going to join us to talk about the Riviera. In the late 19th century, the French and Italian coasts became places of refuge thanks to their moderate climates. But with climate change now destroying the Mediterranean fantasy, she asks, will vacationers go elsewhere or continue to come? So it's a wonderful show, Ashley, something that's perfect for summer listening. Where would you like to begin today? Well, first, Michael, we have to do a little bit of a plug for Airmail Look, our beauty and wellness magazine. We have a new issue out, airmail.news backslash look. It has everything. We talk about threesomes, world's best birthday gift. We talk about the most expensive skincare and why it's so expensive, how everybody in Hollywood is going on strike. I thought you meant threesomes are the world's best birthday gifts, the way you said that. That's what we said. Yeah. Just want to be sure. Yeah. Just clarifying for our listeners. If you disagree with that, we can have a whole other conversation. Conversation. <laughs> Michael speechless again. Okay, moving right on. Moving right on. Airmail look is out there. Be sure and read it. <laughs> Okay. All right. Moving on to this weekend's issue of Airmail. Joanna Berkman is here to tell us about the latest twists and turns in the saga of Leon Black. Leon Black is a financier. He was the founder of the multi-billion dollar Apollo Global Management. And he's been out and about all over New York City. But even as he has been gallivanting around, news has been breaking about his involvement with Jeffrey Epstein and new accusations and a new lawsuit has surfaced about his sexual conduct. Joanna Berkman is here. She's done extensive reporting into this matter. Joanna Berkman is a writer at large for Airmail. She is the winner of the 2023 Deadline Club Award for Arts Reporting for her incredible story for Airmail about the Jumi Bellow plagiarism scandal. She's also investigated sexual abuse at the elite Brant Lake camp in upstate New York. And she's here to tell us all about the latest news in Epstein land, which even though the guy's dead, the revelations continue. Welcome, Joanna Berkman. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. All right. So first things first, who exactly is Leon Black and what are his ties like to Jeffrey Epstein? Leon Black is a New York private equity billionaire. He originally came out of Drexel Burnham Lambert and founded his firm, Apollo Global Management, back in the early 90s, really kind of out of the ashes of Drexel, which was, as you may remember, a very aggressive junk bond firm, which imploded in about 1990 when Michael Milken was convicted of insider trading, as was, I believe, two other Drexel employees. So he started this firm with a couple of other people, several other people actually from Drexel, including two other at the time, very young men who would go on to become billionaires themselves, Josh Harris and Mark Rowan, who ultimately Black would deem his co-founders of the firm. And he's made a fortune. He's now worth approximately $10 billion. What is the nature of these payments that he's been revealed to have made lately in your story? So Leon Black has been close to Jeffrey Epstein, was close to Jeffrey Epstein for many, many years. 
on the sort of circuit in New York. And back in 2012, about around the time that the tax laws were changing in ways that made it significantly more onerous for America's most wealthy people, Jeffrey Epstein began being, as far as we know, paid by Leon Black considerable sums. They started working together in 2012 and Leon Black began paying him what ultimately amounted to, as far as we know, a total of $158 million between 2013 and 2017. And that was allegedly for tax and estate planning advice. Now, most even of the wealthiest people in America, they do not pay their tax and estate planning professionals alleged percentages of the theoretical savings those professionals are helping them to garner. It's Black's position that that is how he wound up paying Epstein these exorbitant sums. Meanwhile, it's important to note at the same time, Leon Black was paying his tax lawyers and tax accountants and all the other people who were at the same time assisting him with his estate and with his financial planning, the standard fees that you pay for the top credentialed people in America who work with the wealthiest people. So he had all of those people working for him at the very same time Epstein was being paid these exorbitant sums, which has been noted was, I believe, larger than the median pay for a Fortune 500. CEO. And meanwhile, he was paying his people from the top law firms and accounting firms the standard fees which they make. Okay. And he sort of skated by, it seems, when the first round of Epstein News came out. Why do you think that happened that way? Well, from the very beginning, Leon Black on calls with his investors, it's important to note that Apollo Global Management, the company, the private equity company he founded, is a publicly traded company. And so he was put on the spot to answer questions. Investors were unhappy. It impacted the stock. And from the very beginning, he was emphatic that he had, as he put it, a, quote, limited relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, that Epstein had absolutely nothing to do with Apollo and that he had paperwork backing up exactly why he paid him these amounts and why it was appropriate and that everything was above board. But over time, it started to leak out that that may not have, in fact, been the case. And once it became clear, I believe the New York Times had published a story saying that Black had paid Epstein more than 50 million. Not long after that, Apollo's board of directors hired the Deckert law firm to do an investigation of Black and his ties to Epstein. And once Deckert did that investigation, that's when it became public knowledge that the, in fact, the sum Black had paid to Epstein was not just more than $50 million. It was more than three times that. It was $158 million. What was interesting about that, the report was riddled with lots of information that seemed very concerning, curious at best. And when the report came out, the headline that Deckard put on it in its executive summary. And we clear him of all wrongdoing. There's no evidence that there was any wrongdoing. And that was essentially taken at face value, although Black did step down as CEO of his firm upon the news. Okay. So what is the latest news? I mean, there's an incredibly disturbing lawsuit that was just filed in New York, I believe. I hate to ask you to tell us what it entails, but please do. Sure. In the wake of the release of the news that the Senate Finance Committee 
has been investigating Black and his taxes and his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein now for more than a year. A lawsuit was filed in federal court by a woman who filed anonymously as Jane Doe. She seems to have been one of Epstein's, for lack of a better word, a sex slave. She was a young girl at the time that she alleges Leon Black raped her inside Epstein's townhouse. She was just 16 years old. And on top of that, she is autistic and has something called mosaic Down syndrome. She is, according to the complaint she filed, developmentally 12 years old. She alleges that Jeffrey Epstein literally handed her off physically from himself to Leon Black and that Epstein introduced her to Black and said his name, this is Leon Black, and told Leon Black that this girl was his, quote, special friend, and that also Leon Black was a very close friend, and that the girl should do the same massage that she did to Epstein to Leon Black. And according to the lawsuit, the massage, quote unquote, that this girl had been trained to give to Epstein involved sexual intercourse as well as a massage. And this is all alleged in a suit, right? This has not been, I think we should just sort of make that clear, right? This is a civil lawsuit filed in federal court. Okay, and let's talk about the payouts to the U.S. Virgin Islands. So it's been a busy last few days for the news around Leon Black. Over the weekend, the New York Times revealed that Black had secretly, it was not publicly disclosed, paid the Virgin Islands, who has been bringing lawsuits against Epstein's estate, which it has already settled for $105 million, as well as half the price for which Epstein's estate has sold his island, which is called Little St. James, and is also currently in the midst of very contentious ongoing litigation with J.P. Morgan, who was one of Epstein's bankers. And the news was that Leon Black had preemptively, as it were, prior to the U.S. Virgin Islands even bringing a suit against Epstein, they were very much considering doing so, bringing the U.S. attorney of the Virgin Islands, bringing a civil lawsuit against Leon Black, just as they had against these other entities. And he settled it for $62.5 million without a quote-unquote admission of any liability. And that was back this past winter. Joanna, we all know, and you know, especially in, in all the great reporting you do for Airmail, that money can silence a lot of things. And yet a lot of astonishing news is coming out this week. If you had to look at the short, the near future for Leon Black, what are you watching for and what do you think could happen here? Sure. Well, there's two things I'm looking for, Michael. One, I'm curious, in addition to this lawsuit that was just filed in federal court by this girl who was 16 at the time of the alleged rape and is developmentally 12, will there be other Epstein victims who were also allegedly raped or abused by Leon Black who come forward. And one thing I'd like to add here is that in the settlements that these Epstein victims have been making, whether with Epstein's estate and other entities, there's, for example, a lawsuit right now with a class of Epstein victims against Deutsche Bank, who became Jeffrey Epstein's main banker after J.P. Morgan no longer wanted him banking there. They have carved out that these victims can go after other men in Epstein's circle. Well, Who are those other men that have been carved out of some of these settlements? One of them is Leon Black. So I'm watching to see will other victims of Epstein and theoretically also Black be coming forward. The other thing that I think is going to be really interesting to watch unfold is with the news that the Senate Finance Committee has been investigating Leon Black for a year It's important to note that Leon Black has refused to give the U.S. Senate Finance Committee any documents which show why he paid Epstein 
the sum of $158 million between 2013 and 2017. And the amounts were all different. One year it was 70, one year it was 50, one year it was eight, one year it was zero. It seems rather random. And Ron Wyden, the U.S. senator who's chairman of the committee, has been asking. There have been several letters back and forth. There have been meetings between Black and the Senate Finance Committee's legal teams. And Senate Finance has said, we would like the documents. You've said that there are documents backing this up. And also in the deck report, which was commissioned by Apollo, it specifically says that at first there were these written agreements as to payment between Leon Black and Jeffrey Epstein. Then there were written agreements that were never signed. And then he just paid him literally, it says, on a, quote, ad hoc basis. And we're meant to think that there's a world in which a billionaire who is known for being kind of ruthless would pay these vast sums without receiving a bill. So it would seem. And so I'm really curious, will Leon Black continue to refuse to hand over to the Senate committee the documents they've asked for? If he continues to do so, what, if anything, might the Senate Finance Committee do? To date, all of this with Leon Black has been civil, not federal. And I'm curious if at a certain point might that change? I have no indication that that is what's to come, but I think I'm not alone in wondering where this all winds up. And it's important to note that Ron Wyden, the Senate Finance Committee chair, has also said that the work that Epstein did on Leon Black's estate and the different maneuvers that were made in Leon Black's estate. They have said it exposes him to potentially a billion dollars in future gift and estate taxes. Now, as far as we know, Leon Black has $10 billion. It's 10%. But that is a vast sum really for anyone. And while depending on how that works out, if Leon Black ever at some point is Lord Leon Black's children, are ever forced to contend with a billion dollar tax liability, that will be a major moment. But I'm curious to know, will financial penalties be the only thing that lie ahead or could this take a different turn? Well, Joanna, it's absolutely brilliant reporting, as always from you, in a case in a world that is dark and shadowy and it's chilling what you've uncovered so far. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, Jeffrey Epstein is dead and his associates continue to get shadier. Jeffrey Epstein's dead, but the long hand from the grave, it will keep, I think, pulling people down and in, or at least pulling them into court. It's a terrific piece of reporting, as we said, and encourage you all to read it in this week's issue. Actually, you know who would have, I think, made a lot out of Jeffrey Epstein back in the day is Martin Peretz, the former editor of The New Republic in the Day. And this week, Ash Carter has a story in the issue talking about Peretz's new autobiography. Yeah, Marty Peretz is in his 80s now, and he's just written a memoir called The Controversialist, Arguments with Everyone, Left, Right, and Center. And Ash Carter, one of our esteemed colleagues, a deputy editor here at Airmail, is going to tell us all about it. Ash is also the co-author of Life Isn't Everything, Mike Nichols, as remembered by 150 of his closest friends. Welcome, Ash. So, Ash, The New Republic has held a venerable place in the history of American publishing. Give us a little sense of its backstory. So it was established in 1914. Walter Littman was one of the co-founders. I mean, there have been a couple of collections. Names are pretty amazing that contributed in those years. But then by the 1970s, it started to get still kind of worthy, but people weren't paying as much attention to it anymore. And that all changed when Marty Peretz bought it. And where did it find itself politically at the time that Peretz came on board? 
I think it was kind of, it's always been a liberal magazine. It just wasn't, maybe it wasn't challenging certain dogmas. The left at that point was very marginal force in American politics. This is right on the eve of Reagan's election and then his landslide re-election. So they weren't really having much of an impact is I guess what I would say. So where was Marty Peretz in terms of his career when he joined the New Republic? How was he known at that point? So he was a kind of young activist, basically. On his first day at Brandeis, he befriended Michael Walzer and he helped Bayard Rustin organize Martin Luther King's March on Washington. Then he married his wife, Anne, who was the heirs to the Singer sewing machine fortune. So he had kind of a war chest now and he became a big donor. He was one of the big backers of Eugene McCarthy's presidential run. By that point, he'd become a little bit disillusioned with the direction that the new left had taken. And he felt that he would rather have an influence through by owning the magazine rather than through direct activism. And who were some of the writers that he cultivated and the editorial direction that he took there? I mean, the list is really pretty long. I mean, I think that you got to start with Michael Kinsley, who he hired to edit the front of the magazine, and Leon Wiesler, who he hired to edit the back of the book, both in 1979. So they were both very young guys and were not well known. Kinsley was 28, and here I think, was 27. And they really kind of set the tone for everything that came after. I think what I would describe, how I would describe the magazine is in those years is that it had kind of the intellectual caliber of like a partisan review sort of little magazine, but it had the irreverence and style of Harold Hayes Esquire or Clay Felker's New York Magazine. Really smart, but also very lively and kind of enjoyable to read. But in terms of the right, I mean, Andrew Sullivan and Mickey Kaus, Robert Wright, Robert Kuttner, then more recently, people like Ryan Lizza, Airmails, Jamie Kerchick. It's really quite a long list. So what was Marty Pratt's like as an editor? I mean, what do we know about his personality? Well, if you want to know, read this book. So, I mean, yeah, I think he might have had the title of editor-in-chief or something, but he really didn't edit the magazine. He didn't. That was really... Kinsley and Hendrik Hertzberg kind of took turns doing that for a number of years. And then Andrew Sullivan, Michael Kelly, Chuck Lane, people like that. But there's no question that Peretz, he's a forceful character. And just by bringing certain people together, encouraging a certain kind of atmosphere and sort of a spirit that the magazine very much is sort of in his own image. He says himself in the book that he's a skimmer, not a plumber. I mean, he's a smart guy, but he chose to surround himself with people who were kind of more intellectual than he was. So, but he's a guy who basically really loved an argument. (laughs) And that's what comes through or what came through in the magazine in those years. And so for a reader who enjoys that kind of thing, it was, I think that if it had a different owner with a different personality, it just wouldn't have been the same. Now, at the same time, he says in the book that the one area where he unilaterally exercised his ownership prerogative was on anything to do with Israel. I suppose that was his right, but that helped contribute to his undoing later on. So, Ash, I mean, one of the things that's great is you give the context about Peretz. He reinvigorates the magazine and coming off the heels of Jimmy Carter and Reagan and sort of makes it really, as you note in the story, barely has a readership of 100,000, yet influences presidents and the whole thinking of the New Dems and through the 90s and into the millennial. So I guess Ash and I are both wondering, like, what goes wrong? And that makes this story so riveting for readers. Well, as I 
mentioned, he never compromised on Israel. And he owned, basically owned the magazine on and off for 38 years. And a lot can change in that, in that period of time. And so towards the end, they were just being buffeted by a lot of things like the emergence of the internet and early blogosphere. And the magazine just had was starting to lose a lot of money and kind of losing influence, partly through its own fault by backing the Iraq war, for example. I guess part of it was just sort of a generational shift, but it was losing its influence a little bit. And Brett's writes that as things began to slip, he kind of started to lash out at his loved ones. And this led to him separating and then getting divorced from his wife of many decades. So he was kind of all by himself at this point. And he's still as opinionated as ever, but he just doesn't really have anyone to talk to. And he decides to start a blog. And in the book, he just says it was a mistake. And I'm not here to disagree with that. Ash, after you read this memoir, how did your understanding of Marty change? So I started reading the magazine in my mid-20s. It was really only at the very tail end of his kind of ownership of the magazine. But and even though it was already considered that the golden age was over by a lot of people, I felt it was an absolutely incredible magazine. And it was very formative. I really did read it practically cover to cover. But I guess what I learned about him is just that I think that he's come under a lot of criticism and a lot of that criticism is deserved. But I think that there's a little bit of a tendency in the culture these days to just want to label somebody as a good person or a bad person. I think that the magazine itself during those years has come under a little bit of that as well. There are some people who just want to say they point to certain things and they want to paint that entire period with a very broad brush. And I think that a lot of that criticism is fair. But I mean, there's a reason why he was such a beloved teacher at Harvard for almost 50 years, for example. And he's just a very outsized character. And he's got big strengths and big weaknesses. And he's very honest about both. I think what's fascinating is when you, again, go back to what you say in your story, is it brought them almost to the brink of this next great glorious year, even almost seeing his friend Al Gore elected president. And then it's sort of all sort of like any act in American life has its unravelings. But I think your passion for him and your reaction to his autobiography is is super intelligent. So it's beautiful for you to share it with us. Thank you. One last thing about Al Gore. I mean, some People say, at least on the left, that the personal is political. For Peretz, I would say the political is personal. I mean, he kind of sometimes reading about politics is very dry, but this is a book that's really full of blood and bile, but also a lot of affection. I think he almost has kind of love for somebody like Al Gore or Eugene McCarthy. But at the same time, part of me wonders if Al Gore had actually been elected, I'm sure he would have found plenty to complain about. That's what made the magazine so good, Ash. All right. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks, Ash. See you soon. All right, Michael. So in case you have made it through all of your Ellen Hildebrandt summer reading, now you've got another book to add to the list. Where else do you do your summer reading but on a great beach or maybe a nice little villa somewhere? And where do we find most of those, Ashley? You know, it's always on the Riviera in the Mediterranean, which is what Elena Claverino was reporting on this week. Well, not necessarily. I think so many of these coastal destinations in places like Italy and France have become such a magnet for the influencer set that they're starting to feel a little bit like Disneyland. And Elena Claverino is here to explain why they're so expensive, why it's so hot, and why we might want to think about some alternatives as we plan our travels going forward. Elena is a senior editor at Airmail, and we're thrilled to have her. Welcome, Elena. Hi, guys. Good morning. 
Elena, I love your story for so many reasons, not because you have really arrived at the heart of what has been bothering me all summer long. The trouble with the med. Where are you right now, by the way, as we have this conversation? I am in Sicily, so right in the epicenter of the trouble at the in the med right now. This is what we call a hardship assignment, ladies and gentlemen. So your thesis is essentially between the one-two punch of the changing climate and the hordes of tourists that are descending upon the toniest spots in Europe. Positano, the south of France, Sicily, they're just not what they used to be in the summer. Yeah, it's tough. I think, I mean, there's like a lot of like hysteria around like people wanting to come visit because of the Mediterranean dream that's kind of been perpetuated over decades. And add that to swelteringly hot weather and you're not necessarily going to have an amazing time and you're probably going to spend a lot of money to be here. So I don't know, I was kind of pondering on that. And I found it fascinating to go back and see that what first attracted travelers to the Med was the climate in the first place, which is kind of how this all started. Well, I mean, originally too, hundred years ago, people were going to the Met in the winter, right? Like it was not a summertime destination because the UK was tolerable in the summer. They would go there to escape the horrible temperatures the rest of the year, right? Right. And then it was kind of the Impressionists who started settling in the Riviera over the summer. The 50s saw all of the literary circles on the Amalfi Coast. And then, of course, there was the age of Brigitte Bardot and Danielli and all of these figures that we kind of idolize today and imagine on their sailboats cruising around the Med. When do you think that this started to change for the worse? Like, when do you think the idea of spending August in Italy became less desirable? I would say it's pretty recent. Like, I think it's been getting worse, like, over the last decade. But I would say after COVID, because I think there's like a travel frenzy of people wanting to go places now that they couldn't for a while. And so now there's like this mad stampede happening. And I think temperatures have also gotten worse since 2020. I mean, I hadn't seen for me 45 degree Celsius weather in my life before 2020. Okay, so let's talk about that piece of trouble in paradise, Elena. As you note in your story, one part of the problem here is driven by what we might call the white lotus effect this season, which is like locusts coming to Sicily to experience and everything and what they saw on the show. But as you also note, there is sort of this biblical plague now of the heat and the hail and all the stuff that's driven by climate change. And we see sitting here in the U.S., you see the wildfires in Greece or whether they're in Sicily or, and even as you report, also people in Italy wondering, are the tourists still going to come? So in your reporting, what's your sense of people in Italy and France thinking that climate change could in fact change the climate that's made this place such a treasure box for people? I don't think that people will think that it's no longer a treasure box. I think people will just kind of change their holidays, their lifestyle, like the entirety of Europe goes on holiday in August. And there was an article, like an interesting article on Le Monde talking about how a lot of French people are opting to take holidays in September instead. So I think people will just kind of change their habits. And perhaps this won't even be, obviously climate change is for the worst, but perhaps maybe these places will get a little less crowded and they'll go back to being a little more pleasant. Well, also, Ellen, I think, too, we've seen this just like insanity happen with the prices of hotel rooms and restaurants and transportation and all of that and these European hotspot destinations. I mean, one of my friends tried to stay at a hotel that will be left unnamed on the French Riviera and the price was 4,500 euros a night just for an average entry level room. I mean, we're hearing throughout the Amalfi Coast and even in parts of Spain that these prices have just become exorbitant. So as people start to get priced out of places like Capri, where are they looking to go instead? So a lot of people People that I know are opting to go to Portugal, for example. It's on the Atlantic, the climate's more temperate, and like Comporta's really becoming a hot spot. I've heard of people going to the Channel Islands, which used to probably be the most undesirable destination in continental Europe once upon a time. And people are going to the mountains too. 
A lot of people are opting Italians who used to go for weekends the, in Portofino or the beach are going to the Alps instead. Also in Scandinavia, too, with the fjords. I mean, it's a beautiful holiday. Elena, where are you spending your holidays this summer? Well, so I'm right now in Sicily, but... It's not that hot anymore, thank God. And then I'm going to Greece in August. Okay, we need you to report back on all of these developments. Again, hardship assignments, but someone's got to do it. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you, Elena. Thank you, guys. Okay, Michael, I think we're off the hook. You no longer need to have FOMO. All those things you see on the gram, it turns out those people are not only sweating, but they're in the process of slowly bankrupting themselves. I have a theory they're either slowly bankrupting themselves or they're basically sleeping in their cars and going into these places for a drink to take a photograph and then sort of going down the road and sleeping in a car park. Grouchy Michael, my favorite kind. Michael, it is the weekend. This brings us to the recommended section of our podcast. Do you have anything, anything that we can't live without? I do. Books, things to read. I'm sure you've, most of you have now seen all the movies out there. So I'm going to recommend a book for good summer reading. Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. Ashley, do you know this book? No, but I know the Shakespearean speech. Okay, good. Look, all the talk right now is about AI and how it's going to shift our lives and how we relate to one another, how we will relate to one another another. But for many people, an alternate reality started with the birth of shared video games. Now stick with me here because I am not a video game guy. I probably played the last game I played probably was Pac-Man if I even did that. So I played just about zero games. I had zero interest in anything like that. And that's on the surface, it's the sort of premise for the book. It talks about the story of Sam and Sadie, two friends who are reunited years after they meet and start developing a video game together. But again, Don't let that hold you back. This novel is much more complex in an interesting story about how our lives and experiences, I think, are now mediated through technology. And it's about love and how it is like building a great game. It's collaborative and creative. I'm just telling you, read this book. I find more and more people talking about it. Even, and weirdly enough, the person who actually recommended it to me was my mother who read it. And I said, how are you reading this book about video games? She's like, my book club. So look, everyone can access this book. It's a terrific, terrific, terrific read. I recommend it to everyone. It's called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. And you, my dear, what would you like to recommend? Well, I have a book too. Have you read The Biography of X by Catherine Lacey? I have not. Well, it's a novel. It came out in March and honestly, it's taken me forever to finish it. I've been reading on Kindle. I think it must be like many thousands of pages in the print version. Catherine Lacey is an American novelist in her 30s. This is her fourth novel and it's weird. It's a fictional biography, but it doesn't really adhere to any genre. In it, the narrator is a journalist who was married to a woman named X who lived an incredibly bizarre yet thrilling life as an artist in which she assumed various different personalities. So she lived in a completely alternative version of America in which the United States were not actually united. But it's a fascinating novel for so many reasons. It thinks about sort of alternative ideas of feminism and what it means to be a woman and what it means to be an artist and what it means to be living in the country that we know and love so well. So anyway, it's a wonderful novel. It's called The Biography of X by Catherine Lacey. It might take you the rest of the summer to read and that's okay. You will enjoy every minute. All right. We got two great books. Everyone stuff them in your beach bag. All right. Well, wishing you all a wonderful weekend with minimal email correspondence and lots of podcast listening and fun. Michael, will you please read us out? Absolutely. Just make sure everyone sets it to out of office. I'll catch you later on September 1. Morning, 
Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.